A reading from John. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself, but his disciples who baptized, he left Judea and started back to Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be, will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What, What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say, but you say that the place where the where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, "Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth." For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said, What do you want? Or, Why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water and jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? The word of God for the world. Well, you've known Michelle for a while now, the Reverend McClendon, um, so you know why it's easy to call her mom. Um, You may not know her Enneagram type if you're an Enneagram personality measure person, but Michelle is a two. She is a helper nurturer. Um, I think if you know her, you know quite well how true that is of her. And she has nurtured my calling and formation 
um, for many years now, which is, it's weird to say many years now, but it's true. Um, so I, I would also say that um, you are a helper, nurturer, congregation, and community of faith. So it gives me joy every time to be uh, in this space with a community that nurtures that maybe is an Enneagram 2 church. Um, so I'm grateful for you and for this time. Let's, let's just bless the space together. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts gathered in this place be pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Unless you had your Bibles opened during this morning's reading from the Gospel of John, you wouldn't have noticed that it had a bunch of parentheses scattered throughout this well-known text. I think you probably know the text well. I must say, I hadn't really paid much attention to all those parentheses in the past because there are water jugs and multiple husbands and wells and a lot going on. But for whatever reason, I found myself recently intrigued by them. And by one parenthetical statement in particular, it's in verse 9, if at this point you are curious. Set us as a little aside for the reader. That would be us. It stands as this morsel of information, this helpful FYI, journeying from the pen of the storyteller all the way to us. Of course, an ancient manuscript of John's gospel, which likely would have been a piece of papyrus covered in Greek letters with absolutely no punctuation at all, wouldn't have had parentheses in it. We use them in the English language to say something like this. While this sentence isn't essential to my story, it would be helpful to you as a reader to tuck away this piece of information as you continue reading. So, there it is in English, this bracketed symbol in verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Open parentheses, Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Close parentheses. Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Well, I suppose that is helpful to know. As we watch Jesus, a red-blooded Jew, walk up to a woman, a blue-collared Samaritan, and ask her for a slug of water. Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Now, we could have a long history lesson replete with uh, maps and a complex table outlining dynasties and kingships and ancestries that would enlighten that little parentheses for us a, a bit. But let's just say for our purposes this morning that for a solid few hundred years, the people group who called themselves Samaritans and the people group who called themselves Jews 
did not and had not shared things in common. Things like schools, places of worship, markets, street corners, resources, water fountains, or more contextually put, water wells, marriages, children. You get the idea. Because, of course, as we all know, Jews and Samaritans do not share things in common. Just stating the facts. Because everybody knows a fact is a statement that describes what's real, what's true. Gravity is a force that keeps us from floating into space. Thank you, gravity. The earth revolves around the sun. My middle name is Gazella. It's after my Hungarian great-grandmother, in case you were curious. And while we're at it, by the way, BTW, FYI, just stating the facts, Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans, says the broken record here. Except when they do. Except when in one small, still, intimate, nearly unseen moment, Jesus, a Jew, shares water and touch and conversation and something in common with a Samaritan. So many things that we treat as facts rule our lives that aren't really facts at all, but instead are just constructions of reality built with the brick and mortar of our prejudices, our fears, our long-held stony convictions. And Jesus spends his whole life God bless him, challenging those convictions. Convictions like these. Those people don't do things like we do things. Or they are in our way. Or we cannot acquire as much land and wealth and security as we need if we worry about them too much. If it hurts them and helps us, it's not really our problem. Or... We're just too different to have too much of anything to talk about. But these aren't facts. They're just a bunch of isms. Isms that often rule and ruin our lives and our relationships. Even if we think that somehow they are true, even if we think that somehow they protect us, set boundaries, and keep the gravitational equations of our social realities balanced. It's so easy to think that other people are in our way, that they are affecting our security, that they are challenging our well-being. In our reading from the Hebrew scriptures this morning, we see the people of Israel wondering about a dry land, searching for water and for hope. So they turned on each other, surprise, surprise and on their buddy Moses, because they didn't have what they needed. 
and they were afraid they never would. And Exodus begins the story with its own little parenthetical statement. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Except, of course, there was water for the people to drink. Granted, it took a little creativity, a little mind stretching, perhaps a little unexpected phenomena, but it was there. Nonetheless, coming out of a rock. Right there in the desert, in the cracked parched land, full of divisions and dry earth. Water waiting for them, confounding their absolutes and certainties and fears. So what is it with these facts that determine the living of our days? How did they become so powerful? Powerful enough to control what we do, who we talk to, who we sit at the dinner table with, and even who we love. I can't help but think that the ancient writer in John is being a bit tongue-in-cheek with us when he tosses this little parentheses into the story, like he's setting us up for the big whammy. So as ancient readers hear this, they say to themselves, um, yeah, thanks, John, but um, everybody knows that. Jews and Samaritans do not share things in common. And as they play out the history and the bloodshed and the violence that makes that statement seem so obviously true, here comes... Jesus, just totally mucking up their train of thought. As he walks by a woman he has been bred to hate and asks her to help him. Jesus just saunters right into this parenthesis and says, meh. And so Jesus and a woman from the other side of town, share their hearts in the middle of the day in broad public daylight. And together, the two of them turn what everyone thought was a fact into an opinion and a misinformed one at that. See, Jews and Samaritans actually shared quite a bit in common. Bloodline, ancestry, Land, and actually God. Okay, so I know I didn't pull out the maps and the dynasties, but as it turns out, Samaritans and Jews are really old relatives. Before all the empires started taking them over and affecting their identities, the reality is these two people groups were angry with each other because in their heart of hearts, They knew they were never supposed to be separated in the first place. They were always long-lost brothers and sisters, too afraid to admit they really weren't all that different from each other. I can't help but think that somehow the early writer of this gospel had a copy of Acts lying around somewhere. And as he came across Acts 2, he must have chuckled right at about verse 42. All who believed were together and shared all things in common. 
They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all. As any had need, day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, like you will be doing shortly, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. There are moments when we find ourselves listening to or befriending or lost in the embrace of people we've been told we don't share things in common with. There are moments when our bodies and spirits find themselves sitting at tables with and breaking bread with, sharing life with people we had been told to avoid at all costs. Jews and Samaritans do not share things in common. Who says? Those who are unclean, the sick, the weak, the invalid, do not mingle with the clean, the well, the strong. Who says? Women and children have no place among those with power and prestige. Who says? The wealthy and the poor do not associate with each other. Who says? Irish Catholics and Irish Protestants must live separately in order to quell the violence. Who says? Black men and white women are not to marry each other and bear children. Who says? Two women cannot fall in love and build a life together. Who says? It's not possible for Palestinians and Israelis to live together in Gaza. Who says? Immigrants, if they choose to be in this country, must accept whatever treatment and whatever low pay they receive. Who says? With an increasing population, there simply are not enough resources to feed the world. Who says? Who is saying these things? Who is building ideologies and walls and borders and systems that tell us these things? Why do we keep believing that we are stuck in deserts without enough water and that we cannot share things in common? Who says? Well, you do. I do. Every day, every day, when we choose to let some readers aside some set of facts that we haven't tested or challenged or reimagined rule our lives. But I can't help but wonder. If you want to wonder with me, feel free. If we truly desired one another, loved one another, refused to fear one another, would we still say these things? Would we still believe these things? Wouldn't the parentheses and everything inside of them just slowly, beautifully wash away like water from a rock? Don't get me wrong, facts are valuable, of course. They help us on our journey toward truth. But alleged facts and tested truths are not the same thing. 
there's a world between them. Just because something always has been doesn't mean it always has to be. And just because we've always been told that our relationships must follow certain rules doesn't mean they must for all time. I love to tell this story about a couple of rule breakers, fact checkers, and myth busters in Durham, North Carolina. They are not famous, and they never achieved really much notoriety at all. They just reimagined what was inside the parentheses. And because they did, they helped transform an entire community, not with fanfare or strategic endeavors, just honesty and vulnerability and love. Their names are Ann Atwater and C.P. Ellis. I had the honor of knowing and learning from Miss Ann, who has now just recently passed away during my years in seminary in Durham. C.P., a white man in rural North Carolina, grew up very poor and disillusioned and found himself entangled with the Ku Klux Klan in Durham. Over time, he developed rabidly strong beliefs about segregation and its importance for white opportunity and success. Miss Ann was a black woman, very poor as well, who grew up her whole life in Durham. She was a passionate ad activist and boycotter. The latest battle was integration of the public schools, a story some of you may know well. The courts had ordered that the schools be integrated and community organizer, Bill Riddick, feared violence. So he required a 10-day community meeting. They called them charrettes. His two co-chairs, yes, Ann Atwater and C.P. Ellis. That ought to go well. By day five, both Ann and C.P. continued to hear stories from the children at the schools, both black and white, how they just wanted to go to a good school, how they knew their poverty would keep them from lots of opportunities, but they wanted a chance anyway. One afternoon, the two of them, CP and Miss Ann, were in a meeting together, just, I mean, going at it, fighting and fuming, terrified of each other distrustful of each other, tired and angry. And then something happened in the midst of the fighting and the fuming. At one point, it was just the two of them in the room. They just broke down and began weeping together. They realized in the midst of the conversation that they both wanted the same thing, a chance for their children to believe that they were worth something when the rest of the world was telling, in many ways, both of them that they weren't. On the last night of the charrette, CP came to the microphone, held his clan membership card up, and said, schools are going to be better by me tearing up this card. I shall do so, and he did. He worked with Miss Anne the rest of his life, and Anne, of all people, was willing to disrupt her own community's expectations, albeit perfectly justifiable expectations, to befriend, of all people, 
a white Klansman. They were lifelong friends, truly, they were, until CP's death. And as a result of their work, among so many others, Durham continued the process of school desegregation. In their tears, in their friendship, in their breaking bread, and sharing their lives with each other, they found living water. They found more than facts. They found each other. They found themselves. And, thanks be to God, if we find ourselves challenging the facts that are little more than fiction in our own lives, we might also find ourselves overjoyed like the Samaritan woman running into town, ready to tell the world that we have been saved. Amen.